All right, so we're back for Loki. Indeed. You know, this is starting to become, like, one of my favorite projects to contribute to. Not going to lie. I get it, Andres. Um, we're pretty special. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> so, I was watching uh, TV, as I'm fun to do, because I'm lazy. And um, there was a Hyundai commercial with Loki in it. Um, and there was, like, the Tesseract was in the... Uh, in the passenger seat and the tagline was question everything and i knew from that moment that we had to be edgy and record a podcast because we were going to question everything also we can't stay away from tom hiddleston because of the obvious reasons he's so hot he's so hot it's yeah we we need to stop talking about that otherwise we'll just spend 30 minutes gushing but right we're back on the mcu train maybe we should say something a little bit about why we keep doing this <laughs> why we keep talking about the mcu i i don't know what y'all are talking about i was actually told that this was going to be about black widow who i'm <laughs> gushing over Ooh. for years now so i have Max to, told me not to i have to ready my russian accents for you all um <laughs> <laughs> okay so loki really good show um i i personally have really been enjoying like i said the the shows that have come out after the kind of big two movies, right? Infinity Wars and Endgames. And I think that leading up to those two movies, uh, those two films, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, has been accomplishing something that is, regardless of how you feel about the stories or the movies themselves, is, is, is quite extraordinary. And uh, as somebody that grew up as a kid actually liking dc comics more uh i have actually really been taken back about uh or with what the uh, mcu has done and as you know we've talked about on so many podcasts there are these very interesting philosophical and political themes in the movies so it kind of hit this peak or climax with with the with thanos and that battle or whatnot and now we're seeing this new era uh what is it phase four now are we in phase four yeah now? Mm-hmm. yeah and um what's come out of that is this experimentation uh in terms of story and narrative in terms of character development and in terms of the aesthetic production style uh of the shows themselves we had uh wandavision first and we you know if you want to hear more check out that episode we got falcon and winter soldier you want to hear more about that check out that episode and now here we are with loki who represents a character that a lot of people like and identify with both because tom hiddleston is is a sexy man but also because he's a fantastic actor and there are other fantastic actors on this show uh as well as the the aesthetics uh behind it so do we want to give like let's start with giving kind of like a overview of of the uh, plot of the, of the show. yeah well maybe we start with loki right yeah who is loki who is loki because uh, because i want to i want well yeah i want to spoil everything but i want to spoil everything so that people who are listening to this um don't necessarily have to have wa- watched all of loki and subscribe to disney plus to follow what we're saying right so loki comes out of the thor films uh, right, and Loki is essentially Thor's kind of bastard brother. He starts out in the MCU as a villain, 
and and he's a trickster and deceitful and a narciss a narcissist and we start to develop a pretty ambivalent relationship to him because he's also super charming and seductive and as as we've said hot and and he's the main villain um, he's the main villain in the first avengers film right and then he becomes kind of an anti-hero and he is a character he's kind of like the joke is that like he just constantly dies and then is resurrected and then he dies again uh, at the hands of Thanos and he says no it's for real this time um, it he's done but then in this particular show they've revived him again but they've revived him essentially before in the chronology before his final final death so once again he's resurrected and by now he fans love him and he's gone from villain to anti-hero to in this show like a really empathetic uh lovely and like insanely earnest character which is which is crazy and it's one of the the i think the highlights of the show watching that mm-hmm. that journey right so i mean it, it starts off actually with the ending of uh we're not the ending like midway through endgame right the, the Avengers, in defeating Thanos, have to go back in time. They do a time heist. And uh, part of that time heist is to go to the first Avengers film uh, and not be kind of seen or spotted and recover the Tesseract. And so in that process, um, they screw up and they fumble it. And the Loki from that timeline sees it, grabs it, and disappears. Right, and so from there... Uh, he ends up in, I think, the Gobi Desert, right? And um, and then he he has this like brief encounter with uh, indigenous people. Uh, might be a little uncomfortable. Indigenous people there, and then suddenly out of the blue, you see these kind of wild, translucent, geometric time warp doors that look like they're straight out of Dune. Um, uh, open up, and then these like soldiers march onto the Gobi Desert and start saying, "You're under arrest, uh, under you know the auspices of the something called the Time Variance Authority," and you know they're very they're like they're they're time cops essentially, and they they bring him in to this place, this kind of temporal nether space which is also like a massive bureaucracy and like <laughs> a bureaucracy like a police headquarters a, a a judicial system um that is in charge of taming and 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 often eliminating those in the universe or those in the multiverse who violate what they talk about as a single sacred timeline. They create what are in the language of MCU called nexus events, which disrupt the way that uh, time is supposed to flow in a linear way. And they create these variations that aren't supposed to happen. And it's the Time Variance Authority or TVA that uh, has given itself the job of cleaning up this temporal mess. And this is where Loki gets plopped in uh at the beginning of episode one and where the whole story unfolds the tennessee valley authority saves capitalism 
<laughs> Wait, and, but sorry. not. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA, is, surprise, surprise, uh, an oppressive, um, maniacal bureaucracy that hates difference. Sorry, I'll, I'll put it another way. The Tennessee Valley Authority uh, covers over and defers the contradictions of capitalism, which will always unravel in the at, in the long run. Um, Thank you, Marx. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> What's kind of cool and interesting is that the TVA has levels of bureaucracy itself. So they have like these busy bee workers on the ground floor shuffling through paperwork and, um, you know, making people that are taken there sign stuff and all of that. And then there, you know, you have your cops and then you have your judges that, you know, uh, investigate what you did to screw over the sacred timeline and then of course at the at the highest level uh you kind of have like certain i don't know what would you call a judge i guess is it she the the judge the ultimate judge yeah she's the she's like a supreme court justice or something okay yeah so you got like your lawyers and like the supreme court justice and then you got the tribunal uh the the timekeepers who exist in a room that nobody's allowed in so there's this whole structural hierarchy which essentially is responsible as uh was just stated to make sure that order and stability is maintained to save capitalism no to to make make sure that the timeline is uh you know is stable because as we saw you know in these last avengers movie you know there are you can go back in time you can do all of these things but it has to always be uh permissible to this authority that's behind the scenes I, but I've just... but there's but there's like there's good people in the TVA too kind of that's Owen Wilson's character right who who first tries to redeem he's introduced trying to redeem Loki from the very beginning I've just realized that um the timekeepers are Jeff Bezos Elon Musk Michael Bloomberg, etc. In this analogy, um, but we, we'll they keep are. going. Yeah. What What happens next is essentially Loki's gonna be eliminated or so-called pruned, right? He's gonna he's done for, and the judge is like, "I've had enough. You're you're going down." But then Owen Wilson's character, which is named Mobius, uh, comes into the courtroom and says, "No, no, no, no." I have this hunch, I have this inkling. He's kind of like a detective figure. And he basically tries to wrangle uh, Loki into his own investigation into these nexus events and various various time interventions and heists that are going on all over the place um, that turn out to be other Lokis, other Loki, what are called variants. And so we get this explosive world of of character variants where it's mostly just a bunch of Lokis, but even later on it's revealed that like there's variants of all kinds of, all kinds of figures from the MCU old and new. And so that goes on for a while. And and there's a kind of, one of those variants is killing time cops. And that's, that's like a big problem. Like there's, there's a variant running around the multiverse killing time cops and, you know, driving the TVA crazy. That, time murderer uh turns out to be a loki variant but a woman named sylvie loki variant named sylvie loki and sylvie um and the kind of um 
buddy slash therapy uh, uh, relationship between Loki and Mobius kind of shifts over to the relationship between Loki and Sylvie, who become kind of antagonistically entangled with one another, but then end up kind of coming to depend on one another and rely on one another and kind of fall in love with one another. And then along the way, we learn in their adventures that both of them uh, are bisexual. And, you know, this this excited and, and, and to some frustrated, uh, you know, fans um, because this is the MCU, you know, becoming increasingly woke. And... Um, and then what happens? Well, they fall in love and they create a nexus event uh, because they're the same person and they're not supposed to do that. <laughs> uh, and so this kind of throws everything in disarray and ultimately turns out Sylvie's trying to like destroy the time the, the TVA and she tells Loki, look, all of these people that work there are variants themselves and they're all being lied to. So Loki's like, what the fuck is going on? And he tries to warn Owen Wilson's character Mobius about this. And people start to catch on to this problem. And this all leads to like a crescendo where they manage to find themselves into that secret room with Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> and they, they cut off the head of Elon Musk. And, and everyone applauds in, in the, at the end of the show. No, I'm kidding. So it turns out <laughs> that, that these big figures are like, they're robots, right? Max yeah, they're animatronics. It's Disney World. It's a, a Wizard of Oz reveal that is not a reveal. And, you know, keeping with that analogy, I think we can show that the TVA and then the thematics of variance and the sacred timeline and the sort of univocity of the sacred versus the difference of variance is revealed to be a sort of system, right? That's autonomous, autonomously structured, at least we think, that is operating not with three figureheads pulling the strings, but in, in some sense a sort of deeper, some might even say ontological logic. Um, and that's an important theme that I think we need to highlight. But that Wizard of Oz sort of reveal then takes us to a sort of uh, to the end of time, right? A sort of even more outside of the temporal system that the MCU has, has zoomed out onto. And this sort of state of nature, end of time commons, where... Called the void. called Right, called literally called the void. Um, a little on the nose there. Where <laughs> um, there is a big monster called Eliath that is protecting what we will then know as the citadel and there's a there's a sequence of of them trying to of sylvie and loki and the other loki variants and mobius all sort of teaming up to figure out how to um to defeat or enchant Eliath, who is an all-consuming beast that it just goes and and just consumes all the difference that gets essentially ejected from the sacred timeline into the void that that gets pruned by the TVA um, and and so this dynamic is one that they have to overcome to eventually get to the citadel which is really where the strings are being pulled right so it's not the it's not the capitalist but it's some 
almost divine temporal uh, authority um, in the Citadel, which I think I will pass over to one of you to explain what, what it is. Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, before we get to the Citadel, it, it's important to highlight the point that these Loki variants use different forms of magic to kind of like do their mm. thing, right? And they don't all share the same skills. Uh, they share different a bit magical abilities, but Sylvie is critical in being able to get beyond this Eliath monster and get to the Citadel because she has the enchantment form of magic where she can enchant people. Um, this manifests with the TVA workers by taking them to their life before they were taken into the TVA. And it's I, a kind it, of radical temporal empathy, right? She can yeah. kind of get in their heads and share, share their lives with them and, and, and in a way that gets them to open up and be vulnerable. And she can, you know, do that for good or she could do that in manipulative ways. So she gets this time-fragmented monster thing to open up and be vulnerable, literally, so that they can reach the Citadel where they walk in and then we are horrified to a jump scare from Miss Minutes, who's this, like... She's, like, this virtual time uh potentiality thing that uh, i mean she's she's a clock who looks like a 1950s animation yes yeah, we're gonna right. talk but, about but, the but also that yeah we'll talk yeah. about the aesthetics i think more yeah yes so they reach this and they find out that there is a dude there named he who remains who's been pulling the strings uh this whole time played by jonathan majors and puts on amazing an, an amazing performance and uh you know this kind of elicits willy wonka uh, vibes, and uh, it, he explains what's been happening this whole time. And so, as of as of a variant of Kang the Conqueror, who will come up later in the MCU, he who remains describes the world and the problematic, which we're gonna dig into, I think, predominantly in this episode, which is that variation and the variation of the world and the universe, which we're going to now call the multiverse is a really dangerous problem. And what end, what has ended up happening and why we need a sacred timeline, why we need cops, why we need the TVA is to prevent multiple realities essentially from coming into contact with one another because there's inter universe wars that go on amidst the variation. And so the different Kang the Conquerors, such as he, are fighting intertemporally, interuniversally for multiversal domination. And these sort of massive wars, which recall the like the technological Pandora's box of World War Two and the atom bomb, are and the New Deal, and and the New Deal, <laughs> we're all we're all in that, right? And the the fiscal powers of the New Deal, um, it it's something that the sacred timeline is meant to essentially construct an island outside of, and so the singular universe of a self subsisting sacred timeline, which the TVA polices by ejecting. And, and essentially killing variation in the name of univocal singular 
temporal identity, almost like a Calvinist vision of the elect that get to persist along the universal timeline is meant to protect against all of these self-imploding, anarchic, chaotic, multiversal forms of warfare. And this is the central problematic of essentially the MCU writ large, as narrated through Loki, but of specifically why temporality is an issue in this show and what the sort of guiding problematic ends up looking like and i think we we can get into our thesis about this which is going to revolve specifically around this structuring of an ontology of univocity on the one hand right this sacred timeline and then equivocity on the other difference variation as an absolutely chaotic uh, in incommensurable singularity of difference um and we're going to de- delve into that potentially through Deleuze and in and, and other ways when we give our thesis. But it's important to say that this big reveal of the like ontological structure is what motivates He Who Remains to be this sort of Hobbesian Leviathan figure um, of a universally bureaucratic protection social contract that people don't even know that they're entering into. Yeah, and and you know the the MCU for these first the first three phases um, has a lot of themes of power and mind, right? Like Captain America being a super soldier and power in that sense, and you got Tony Stark and like his inventions and all that stuff. But now we're kind of really exploring this this concept of of time's role in all of this, um, which I think is is really interesting and important so he who remains basically offers them a deal loki and sylvie and says um i want you all to take my spot because of what you represent the both of you one person that can't be trusted but is like reforming himself and the other person who can't trust and uh that's the the option that he gives them or kill me or kill me and if you do kill me, then that will unleash all of the variants, all of my variant, Kang's variants, or, or he who remains his variants. And war- he warns them that this will lead to all of the uh, colonialist, uh, imperialist, conqueror Kangs to come about. In a war of all against all. And we're all streaming different shows at different times, and we can't even commune and communicate anymore um so yeah that's it and it's this kind of weird it's like this uh wizard wizard of Hobbes meets willy wonka move at the end i mean it it, and and then we also learn that everything up until this last moment in that episode everything has been determined right Mm -hmm. so that every free choice that anyone, any variant has ever made, even breaking the sacred timeline, has been absolutely determined. So then it becomes this opposition between absolute determination and a loss of free will or an expression of free will and the threat of 
absolute chaos and conflict. There, there's if if you read about the show, there's a lot of uh, writing and theories that in Avengers: Infinity War, the scene where Doctor Strange looks into the future and analyzes all the potentialities in which the Avengers can defeat Thanos, he actually connects with He Who Remains, and He Who Remains explains to him, "This is the only way. This is what what I will allow you all to do." Uh, because he's behind this sacred timeline, and that's the one option that they have to to defeat Thanos. So, I think, like, I want to say that this move is just kind of sad and uninteresting. At, at first off, right, it's just a a guy who's pulling the strings to protect everyone. But it's also, I think, really important as a way of staging and sketching how the particular moves and ambiguities of the show that we would want to affirm are groping for something more. And and in that, I think we can start with, now that we've sort of sketched the, the sort of plot of Loki, digging into what our thesis is about this series and there are a lot of different pathways to getting at this but essentially right we were talking about you know this wizard of hobbs thing we thinking about social contract theory and the sort of necessity and, and opposition or antagonism between protection and freedom these sort of classic liberal political problems um we can see that essentially right this Loki, and as an iteration and the the sort of vanguard iteration of this MCU problematic, is a, a tragedy, right? It's a tragedy, it's a tragic love story, but it's a tragedy that plays out the perpetual failure of social contract theory, as well as fascism's what we could call seductive exploitation of the failure of social contract theory. And in playing that out, though, there are all sorts of, right, it's not univocal. So there's all sorts of ambiguous desires and longings for some form of an alternative to that univocal, equivocal, problematic, right? Yeah, and it's not just the failure, right? It's I mean, it's funny. I think we got caught in our obvious critique and disappointment because we were recounting the plot first (laughs) and so you actually have to state these ridiculous assumptions of that come in the end but the the thing is is like this is a this is a beautifully made show Mm -hmm. it is uh starring really dynamic and interesting actors uh it's queer or queerish you know and it's certainly queer from the point of the mcu um, it gets really campy at certain points, uh, and the kinds of the kinds of aesthetic and social relationships that it, that's being explored along the way are are actually fun and cool, <laughs> and 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 all of that is worth affirming, right? Especially for what the show is as a massively popular Disney Plus. MCU series, right? Like, obviously, we're we're not saying this show is like the, you know, the vanguard of art cinema, right? But, but there, there's something important about its popular mode in what it's exploring, even if tepidly, 
right? And there's something, I, part of our thesis about this, this phase four of the MCU is that it's entering into woke politics slash uh, an, an alternative formal exploration, right? It, it's sort of seriality is, is different than the sort of filmic duration and temporality and this sort of formal difference and exploration of woke problematics really these things do open up alternative problems that are presenting things to mass audiences in the forms of aesthetic or logical or social structures that do feel new and do feel a bit of a bit like a response to certain form of paradigms cracking or altering or reiterating themselves. And in that exploration, there's of course, and we can see our other, you know, our WandaVision and our Falcon and Winter Soldier. There, there are real um, thematic openings for thinking new forms of social structures, of aesthetic structures, of sensuous structures, um, of mediations of, from economic to aesthetic to social and all the interlocking components and and textures of, of, of those relations. It all is of a piece in speaking to the potentials and perils of our of our moment in 2021 and, and the ongoing COVID crisis and all of this. So it's important to to draw back to, to those stakes while then plugging into the critique, which I think will then allow us to even draw back further to those stakes. But in doing all of that, right, I we still think coming to our thesis about Loki is that it really leaves us in a bind and wanting more of what it did that really worked or that really really was grasping at something new and from there i think we should then move into some of the sort of dive back into some of the specifics of this philosophical critique we want to explore in this podcast wait max so what you're saying is that loki isn't just culture industry brainwashing (laughs) the masses yeah, uh, it's it's a uh, it's the pro Deleuzian culture industry. We've we're very <laughs> familiar with this in critical theory. Um. No, but I mean, I think you bring up a really important point because, um, you know, as you said, even though this is Disney, a massive corporation, putting on this production project, I I think like there's a tendency, especially amongst fellow leftists and progressives, to kind of uh, dismiss you know, anything that has uh, aspects of, um, you know, uh, aspects of corporate power or capital or, or whatever um, as as part of its production, especially when it comes to media um, and, and uh, the production of ideas and art and whatnot. But what we're proposing here is that that's not the right way to approach um, the different problematics that we get in media. Like, we're not going to find our perfect utopian, um, you know, revolutionary socialist form of art that is just going to straightforwardly and univocally 
you know, critique the capitalism and then show us the way to the revolution. Rather, it's through the anxieties and the tensions and the possibilities that different arenas put forward, in this case, Disney, that is struggling with its own uh, impulse to open things up to social justice, to racial justice in particular, uh, to queering its own history, um, and also failing at doing that in a way that's satisfactory. Like that's what we're we're interesting we're interested in the most. Yeah, and you know, I mean, we could tie this, of course, back to specific critiques of Adorno and Horkheimer's uh, culture industry chapter and dialectic of enlightenment, which I will gesture towards, but I don't think we want to dive fully into that. But the the point is, is that. Um, a part of our critique of univocity and then what will come to explicate the equivocal or univocal equivocal problem, which you, you, you don't have to understand yet, is that looking at a media form like Loki, especially a popular media form, right, that's coming out of a vast corporate apparatus of coordination and production. And as we mentioned in our um, in our Infinity War uh episode uh you know a lot of loans often uh publicly mediated um the the media forms themselves are not reducible to a proximity to to a sort of money form or exchange relationship um that would be the first thing but secondly as a broader matter of aesthetic critique that the ambiguities and the multi-faceted formal expressions that are harbored within any particular media form are always pointing to different ways of imagining so the social totality or or the social relations in general no matter what form of media it is and where it comes from there is there are always ways in which it's analogizing difference in its from its corporate or even non-corporate location and so in 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 its almost we could almost say multivariance to to make a joke about uh the timeline here <laughs> there's there's a vast texture of for that's available for us for interpretation and that creative process is actually how we as participants as critical participants are are creating these alternatives and, and outstripping the the very particular logics of the media form that um, that many might see identify and univocally negate or critique because it's associated with Disney and this is not necessarily absolutely new but it's it's an important way in which we're bringing critique and re and a sort of redemptive impulse to media forms in general. I mean, this is at least what I what I tell myself to rationalize my love of the Beatles, who uh, Theodore Adorno <laughs> said was trash. I mean, Adorno thought everyone was trash, yeah. except <laughs> except some really austere modernists. Well, Adorno Adorno thought him <laughs> and he, Charlie Chaplin. Adorno thought he himself was trash for what it's worth. So yeah, um, he who is trash, he who is trash. <laughs> that is truly Adorno. Um, he who remains. <laughs> let's let's like let's suspend the some of the more complicated things for a bit and let's just kind of get into some of the aesthetics of the show so i kind of want to talk about the ambivalent this truly ambivalent construction of the the tva mm -hmm. right the tva as a space so 
it's it's yes i think like the dominant feel that they were going for was a univocal like physically hierarchical as andres was saying space of bureaucracy right which um our friend on twitter alexander skaggs pointed out you know like a lot of people were associating that with like a kind of kind of gross neoliberal critique of new deal um public spending and public mediation and things like that. And um, and I think that is there to be had, but it, it's more complicated um, as these things often are. So the way it's constructed in what we in film studies call the mise-en-scene, that's basically just what you see on the screen, is essentially architectural and uh, design or furnishing, right, and props. Uh, and then that those two things being framed by cinematography. So the the architecture is is mid-century brutalist architecture, which starts kind of post World War II in Western Europe, but also Eastern Europe and the United States in different ways. And it's sort of associated with like a kind of humble, mass-oriented public rebuilding and expansion of housing and municipal buildings in order to essentially roll back, you know, uh, late 19th, early 20th century, Gilded Age, laissez-faire, you know, hellscape world, right? And... Um, at the time, it had utopian impulses and ones that were, you know, even in tension with one another, you know, in the United States versus in Eastern Europe and, you know, in the, in the Soviet bloc. But today we read those as ominous, right? So like they've got these like modernist forms and features that are kind of sexy and interesting, but the brute concrete and the kind of overwhelming weight of them that bears down, we... <laughs> rightly or wrongly associate this with like repression and the opposite of free will and you know a big bad evil state the repression uh, of a and... library yeah the brutish <laughs> yeah, repression yeah. repression of a library just like totally c coming down on you and, yeah and consuming yeah. you <laughs> totally and i mean that's graduate then... school for what it's worth <laughs> it is just graduate school it's we're all self-hating pmc anyways so yeah <laughs> so then you've got like like much more vibrant, colorful, mid-century modern, like, yes, Western European influence, but then it's really specifically a kind of American mid-century commercial modernism with all kinds of like dynamic shapes and shiny plastics and colors. And that stuff is sexy. And that's, I mean, and it, you know, the, the showmakers reference Mad Men, you know, like they had that in mind, right? And so they bake this ambivalence using our our historical associations with different forms of mid-century culture that we, like, on the one hand, as uh, associate with domination, univocal domination, and yet on the other hand, we associate with, like, mid-century prosperity and dynamism. Um, and they kind of ask us to wrestle with those in our own enjoyments and displeasures in that space. And then the cinematography 
comes in and the cinematographer worked with the production designer um, arguing basically in the budgeting process that they wanted a budget to build ceilings. This is like, this makes me think of like the way that uh, Citizen, uh, Citizen Kane was made and um, Orson Welles' work with uh, the, the cinematographer Greg Toland, who, you know, you don't build, if you're on shooting on a soundstage, you don't build ceilings. That's ridiculous. You, that's where you drop lights, right? So it's, it's a really a bitch, and, an, and it's an additional expense to, to create ceilings. So they did that because they wanted to feel the kind of full ambivalence of these surroundings um, in ways that, yeah, were both overbearing and super sexy and, and, and fun and interesting. I think we should keep continuing down this trajectory of aesthetics. So the the mid-century TVA, as you've described it, Scott, um, also then opens up to what we might call a sort of uh, mid-century sort of lavender kind of queer-ish space of sci-fi fantasy lavender space yes exactly of of bisexual lighting as it were um yeah um and and this director is is you know outright on twitter openly openly bisexual queer she's like she's on record saying like yeah we put bisexual lighting right you know corresponding to the bisexual flag in these in these like distant planets and and stuff that we've constructed and so Obviously, like, we can easily dismiss the sort of reductive, well, this is just woke signaling part of this. Because I I think... Queerwashing. Right, exactly. Because I think to do so is just to not take aesthetics and sensory form seriously at all. And there's a lot of... And there's a, there's a philosophical lineage for reducing and boiling, making those class reductions, um, to... To, to that but obviously we don't take we don't necessarily we don't take that approach and so that's for one thing and secondly too i do think the mass audience component of this specifically from the like mcu sort of culture of superheroes as it's been historically constituted in in especially in the u.s even though there's always been subcultures and these sorts of things this is actually an important moment for opening up this queer dynamic to a mass audience in ways that they might desire. And, and, and it's a sort of complicated wrenching open, but that is a, a sort of crucially important, I think, even just as, as a matter of popular culture, representational dynamic that um, is certainly underappreciated in a lot of cultural criticism I've read, um, especially on the left. And, and repressed because there's always been this like unspoken understanding that there is like a homoerotic element to superheroes anyways. I mean, mm -hmm. Batman and Robin have certainly represented that yep. uh, as, as, a, as a concept and then also as a movie, the movie Batman and Robin directed by Joel Schumacher is full of kind of queer and homoerotic undertones, but it was never kind of publicly affirmed. Um, it was always on the down low. Right. And so I think like Loki here represents the affirmation uh, of, of that queerness in superhero as superheroes as a genre. 
Yeah, and they're playing around with it, and I think they're they're testing the waters, and I don't even think they fully know what they're willing to do. So just two two things to note on this score, just in terms of, I mean, I want to talk about like queer lighting. I want to talk about bisexual lighting and all that stuff, but just in terms of just character representation. So in an earlier version of Loki, we've learned through you know the the, the endless intertextual universe of you know. Uh, the discourse industry that surrounds the MCU, we've learned that they were actually going to have the first episode be very different, and it would it would have included like him going around and having sex with all kinds of different <laughs> different kinds of pe- people or creatures or whatever, right? So I think they were going to be a lot more uh, straightforward, you know, haha, <laughs> straightforward <laughs> about queerness, um, and then you know. I guess so they they kind of came back from that and then it's this weird thing where <laughs> their the Loki Sylvie romance is pretty vanilla <laughs> and and actually kind of you can kind of read it normatively as just a man and a woman <laughs> falling in love right um so like they do you could say they have their cake and eat it too right which is what blockbusters and mass culture do right but but that's again not to reduce it right it does matter that they're both male and female variants of the same being and that and that they both swing both ways and they're kind of falling for one another within that even if it can get really normcore real quick yeah, and and that sort of we can talk about the autoeroticism of that and how that that dynamic is itself a sort of you know it's a mark of variation to to use the themes and and there are a lot of other things I know one thing Scott that you brought up um, with the help of of uh, another film scholar Amy Rust who also happens to be your partner is that um, Loki's mise en scène like is actively citing the feminist seventies artist. Judy Chicago, and especially her fireworks series, the sort of colorations of, of purple and, and sort of the, in, I believe it's the, the when the Nexus event is occurring in Loki, this, this active citation points to, again, this feminist queer impulse, which we can maybe call it, because, because of those, um, those sort of ways in which it is reined in, even though there is ambivalence there too. This impulse is spoken to in other aesthetic moments. We've talked about the campiness of it. We've talked about the, um, the a little bit of a, it being a more dialogue-driven show rather than an action-driven show. And, of course, there is action and adventure and, and sci-fi elements, but the character dynamics are really at the forefront because the differentiation and variation is playing out on, the, on those terms, right? That's how, the, that's how it's expressed. Um, and so I do think... The, this playfulness and this campiness and this this looseness that we find a little bit like uh, reminiscent of WandaVision um, is really important as a formal mechanism in the way it speaks to a, a broader structural dynamic that's playing out in the narrative of the show. But I want to drive the point home that this queerness and this difference and this sort of mid-century potentiality of like this lavender perhaps even the lavender new deal yeah the lavender new deal <laughs> um it and, and you know the, a lot of world war ii kind of 
queerness that's also embedded in in that lavender new deal uh mantra this is explicitly aligned with variation and difference in the structure of the timeline problem and this alignment is really crucial for how we are going to move through this the philosophical critique of liberalism um because while while holding on to the queerness and the ambivalence that we want to affirm from this show because how it is staged is that this variation and this difference is the enemy of the self-subsisting stability of a universal sacred timeline so we have on the one hand the univocity of a hobbesian necessity that is arriving out of this state of nature chaotic danger from all sides hobbesian liberal political you know political problematic you you need the you need the tva and you need the sacred timeline right and so difference and queerness is posited as an antagonism to stability to sound finance if we want to keep with that that uh to that 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 analog of the self-subsisting policed white timeline right of essentially this calvinist narrative of of universally elect temporal movement and so in positing queerness as the problem that is wrenching open univocity through a sort of absolutely imminent variation we still have this structural structural dynamic of exclusion as an ontological problem right so it's like being queer actually is a problem because it, it makes everyone unsafe <laughs> right i mean that's essentially the structural dynamic that's that's going on here and what we want to first say is reject that dynamic but in doing that, I actually want to dig into what I think we found philosophically reminiscent of this structure, which is the work of Gilles Deleuze, who, for those who don't know, is a 20th century French post-structuralist um, and, and wrote uh, in, in philosophical modes and economic modes and, and, and other modes. And he... of. I will say, as someone who's studying in, at, at a University of California uh, PhD program, he's someone that PhD programs, especially theoretically minded ones, are reading a lot. And I, I might even say more so than um, than any any really other philosopher, especially you know, or or even traditional Marxist. Uh, as it as it comes he's very in vogue and very popular and his ideas are very there's a reason why it's because they're very sophisticated in the way they develop the the western philosophical tradition and um see them to a a sort of non-conclusion conclusion and um we say this i think because we want to provide a context for how our money on the left vision not just the political economy, which we will get into because there are monetary themes in Loki, but also for undoing or, or reinterpreting the Western philosophical tradition actually can, can be refracted in narrative and structural components of media 
And, and making those connections, I think, are important for how we then understand the context of those media, which is our contemporary moment. And so Deleuze sketches in what, what the one thing we're going to touch on, because there's a lot we could touch on. But I think the one thing that's really important to touch on is his book, Difference in Repetition, which takes explicitly Franciscan ideas from the likes of Duns Scotus, but also ideas from German philosophical traditions, Nietzsche, Leibniz, uh, a critique of Hegel, um, and, and in a few other directions to take the problem of univocity, right? Of singular determination of sovereignty, we could say, of, of essentially liberal political th theory, right? Of this, of this necessity for law in the liberal imaginary as a protector against a state of nature chaos and attempts to sort of flip it over and turn it on its head and essentially says that there is not generality right there's not as we can call this explicitly there's not a money generality or a general legal structure of universality that protects or can or we relate to as a universality but rather anything and we can talk about a thing or we can talk about an identity not necessarily in the hegelian sense but an identity in general any person anything is absolutely different from any other thing right and so this is where we get in loki to this problem of variation right even even people who are the quote unquote the same are absolutely different from one another and this multiply infinite problem of of sort of generation and and energetic flux is one that is not it, we we don't even have to necessarily call it a bad infinity in the hegelian sense right but it's the dynamic of existence this sort of transcendent infinite multiplicity of difference that is anarchic and doesn't cohere and i mean it is the good and, and deleuze would hate that term but it is the good in deleuze. right i mean we is as is always the problem and you try and get away from essences you end up establishing essences but um and so yeah the, this difference in itself and it's the the repetitions of difference in itself uh, become the the sort of affirmed dynamic of metaphysics and philosophy as a absolutely imminent ground of flux and process and movement and 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 from that like we we can think about the way in loki right the tva is not made up of normal people who quote unquote are are have a task and are fulfilling their task in relationship to the general univocal structure of legality and bureaucracy and money but rather they themselves are also variants right and so the univocal system of the sacred timeline is is revealed to be just a composite of chaotic difference being ordered by power by uh, univocal structures that uh, try to oppress and cage the anarchically different and this is will sound should sound familiar because it, it actually retreads a, a sort of common problem and critique of liberal political theory which is Right. We have this necessity of walls and borders and exclusions and of an inside and an outside. 
And Deleuze is essentially saying it's all outside. And that is the absolute plane of imminent transcendent flux. And, and we can think of the multiverse as a figuration for that, um, as this chaotic temporal disequilibrium. And he even will use the phrase disequilibrium for our economic listeners to describe um, this metaphysical problematic. And so that, I think, is a way of sketching the relationship between this metaphysical or temporal image in Loki and this, these broader philosophical problems. Now, what I want to do is maybe hand it over to one of you to, to relate this to money and how Loki figures this problem in monetary terms so then we can come back to why MMT and money on the left actually unravels it. So one thing to be said is <clears throat> one of the ways that this gets mapped onto Loki, not not necessarily as a straightforward narrative history, but as a kind of aesthetically implied history, is a fall story that's, I think, pretty familiar um, to uh, and, and, and unquestioned by everyone from historians to very online Marxists, um, which is that essentially mid-century, you know, it might have been oppressive, but at least it was prosperous for a lot of people. Um, and I guess the cost of it was that it had to be prosperous for, you know, white heteronormative cis, um, uh, you know, middle class families in the suburbs. Um, and then and then the way this story goes is that like what what neoliberalism wrought or what post-modernity brought was we got difference, right? We got difference, but we had to pay for it by sacrificing our security and our prosperity. I mean, us as, as, as a whole, right? As a heterogeneous whole. Um, so, you know, uh, now women can have more agency in... Uh, if we're talking about like the middle white middle class narrative, white women can now have more agency in the workplace, in the corporate workplace, but she makes less. And, and now, you know, husband father is making less too. And every everyone sort of losing. <laughs> There's less and less security, but at least we have difference, right? And I think the taxpayer what, what has the to MCU, pay more. Yeah, the taxpayer has to pay more. You have to tax white male heterosisness in order to spread that taxpayer money around right while of course the rich are gobbling it up and i think what what this cosmic multiversal you know story of like all time or multi-time this mythos that we get in loki does is it naturalizes the, the story of neoliberalism and where we came from and where we went and what the problems are today. And there's other ways of talking about this, but I think that that's one of the most straightforward and graspable ways that I think the show does. Yeah, I think I think uh, the way that I um, understand the, the analysis you just put forward, Scott, is, you know, he who remains discovers his variants and and begins to engage in trade they start to 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 
speak with one another and uh and you know there's uh, flattery and uh and from that trade and that uh, goodwill comes all of this technology they all of a sudden are able to produce the pruning devices and the portals and all of these beautiful wonderful things but eventually you start to uh experience market failures oh no some of these some of these entities uh start to want to take control and monopolize uh the market and monopolize power and it's in, it's in it's in that circumstance that you need to you need everybody to come together uh under one sovereign to step in and address these market failures uh through regulation and and through the i guess you know the taxpayer system uh well, to enforce a kind of stability onto or, the timeline or like a wto or or and and then another dynamic of this is it this sort of globalization kind of narrative of multiplicity that again like fails and and goes out of control and there's supply chain blockages to keep with this is that there is a competing retrenchment right a retrenchment to pure difference right a pure singular sort of in, enclosed island which is what loki's sacred timeline is right it's a it's a retrenchment to a sort of isolationist self-subsisting economic pro problem right a, a sort of anti-trade anti these sorts of things and so in the dynamic of naturalizing neoliberalism or naturalizing the contradictions between the the problem of multiplicity and singularity we see what essentially Deleuze slash Loki have to offer is that all of this globalization it's not actually it's not actually run by a sovereign that's the rejection right and we of course would reject even that rejection as 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 framed incorrectly but what it really is it's a bunch of composite forms of different economies and persons all scaled up and down producing a a a, a disequilibrium circulation process right that is always failing and and will never cohere into what university wants it to and we agree it will never cohere into what university wants it to but that critique is also premised on the university of difference and 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 Deleuze even calls this univocal difference, right? And that's a fr explicitly Franciscan articulation of the metaphysical problem. And so coming back to this, like this naturalization, I mean, Scott was basically talking about the two income trap, which is actually a, the name of a book written by Elizabeth Warren that sort of is a, a weirdly sort of reactionary, uh, reminds me of a Brunig take, um, affirmation or <laughs> lamenting of the neoliberalization of the household, right? Where we would go from one, one phallic income to two incomes now less than like less than that one income as it comes to purchasing power. This fraying, right? Or, or, right? We could, we could even think of it as like in network theory terms, right? Or, or systems theory terms, this, this this activation of differentiation which is what the process of 
history or time is. This variant pops up and variant pops up and variant pops up um, is, a, is a way of analogizing, as Scott said, neoliberalization, but even further, the problem of liberal political economy that neoliberalization brings to fruition, right? And what's so just devastating to me, and I, it took me a couple of days to recover, was, uh, you know, He Who Remains, that is such an incredible performance. It is so sophisticated, so nuanced. And, and yet, and, you know, this is, a, this is a black man performing this role and doing such an incredible job. But he's, he as a performer is being to, asked to essentially articulate not only this kind of false problem of modernity in zero-sum ways, not only I mean, everything we've said thus far, but like just to say it aloud, like the, the, the logics behind Trumpism and the new ethno-nationalism mm-hmm. and the new eco-apartheid eco-fascism, which is essentially, look, if you want to be safe, you know, maybe you, maybe it's worth sacrificing difference. Mm-hmm. And, and, ugh, I mean, make it a white guy who says that. I mean, that's Well, it's both, rough. it's both he who remains and Judge Rainslayer who yep. are the are the top officials of the whole TVA and as we know both black both both black right black woman black man and um judge rainslayer in her life before the TVA is working at FDR uh elementary i believe uh mm, so yep. so the connections of the TVA with the Tennessee Valley Authority and the New Deal are explicit uh, and yep. so that kind of tension and anxiety is there, both in all of the ways that the New Deal advanced the cause of equality, justice, and and uh, and racial justice, and excluded, uh, and kind of abandoned and did harm to uh, black uh, the black community and other minorities as well. So yep. that's there, and and it's an argument against the Green New Deal, right? Yes. It's both. Right. And, and they're playing it both yes. ways. And they, you know, they were, I mean, whether they're 100% self-conscious or are using the language we use or not is irrelevant uh, for me. But like, think about it. They're making, they're designing this and making this in the Trump era, in the pandemic era, they have to shut down production and come back. And I'm sure they're reworking and re- rewriting. Like you can feel how if Trump had won, this would have played. Right. Right. And and I, I want to make this explicit, too, because I think this allegory to to the to our moment is really important. The way the univocal difference problematic plays out on the terms of the timelines and the multiverse is can can even be thought about on the terms of borders and covid specifically. Right. So the idea is that multiplicity, the chaos and violence of multiplicity of essentially, right, like we could even think of it of, of people crossing so-called borders, right, is unaffordable. We can't afford it, right? The virus is going to spread rapidly. We we can't afford... The Delta right, variant. We, exactly, the Delta variant. We can't afford it. What we have to do is either enclose ourselves 
right? Re- enclose our borders and, and, and establish the sacred, prune, put people in cages at the border, or just let the variants and let COVID run wild. That's the structural dynamic that's being set up in Loki as a matter of political theory. And it, when you put it on those terms, it's entirely obvious how, how that zero-sum dynamic is explicitly fascistic. Whether it's enclosure, sacredity, univocity, all of that, and, you know, get, make the vaccine, inoculate everyone in the United States, leave everyone else to die, right? Or the Agamben move, which is we just need to let COVID run its, run its natural path, let the chaos of pure freedom, freedom and, and unadulterated state of nature, absolute difference in a sort of network of, of pain and death run its course because at least we'll have our free will that's and and any attempt to try to respond to that i.e a vaccine is inherently fascistic totalitarian intrusion into our liberty exactly right and that's that's a gombin and what what the show does is asks us to wrestle with this seemingly entrenched impossible to escape problem Mm -hmm. right so the show isn't flatly a a gombin-esque the show is entrenching us in the same problem as a gombin frames it as deleuze frames it in his own way right so i think that's important but what i I, uh, what is entirely unthinkable in the show except for a few kernels potentially of longing and a few kernels of Maybe we could do this differently, which I think the, the character of Mobius embodies. And then the, the love story of Loki and Sylvie is a, is a manifestation of, of a potential. And the queer aesthetics. And the queer aesthetics yeah. is that there is a way to think difference and governance together, but not in a way that subsumes either or. And so we can think about what it might mean to produce vaccines coordinatedly in a in a way that's that we reckons with global variance and dependence and is a real industrial policy that is inclusive and that ensures caretaking globally in in all sorts of different ways right through all sorts of overlapping schemas of of legal structures and governance governance and you know, one might imagine uh, international authorities helping to to coordinate this, which is not to say that this is immediately possible in our present moment, right? Because of because of entrenched forms of power and and structures that are with incentives that are that are perverse and misaligned, but that it's thinkable. Like we can think it up as a matter of a of a thought exercise, a way in which the means and mediations are possible to facilitate that, right? We could think about a, a global Green New Deal. We could think about all different sort, all different things. We could think about responses to climate change. We could think about Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson's book. These things are thinkable. But per, in the show, it's precisely unthinkable. And that's the dynamic that... So, Max, I have I have a question for you here, which I think is, is really important and, and will help uh, a lot of our listeners... Uh, 
kind of engage with with where we're going with this and and that's this relation that you brought up between this delusian impulse towards univocal difference and franciscan uh logic and metaphysics right because we're 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 kind of you know implicitly drawing on this mmt based framework that rejects univocity and understands money's boundless role right but and a lot of times we oppose that to Franciscan impoverished metaphysics, right? So mm-hmm. what is it about Deleuze that, it, you know, that univocal difference is drawing from Francis that is the problem here? I think an important way to think about this is we can think about the sacred timeline as the medieval Catholic Church in the sense of, right, it's the it's the <laughs> one path of institutional access to God, right? To being, to existence. And so in a rejection of that university, right? We, we instead go to the particular form of difference and it's particularly enclosed, right? And uh, impoverished outside relationship to the, in the structure. And then to turn that difference back on the structure and show how all of the structure is itself composed of that impoverishment and that singular enclosed difference in itself universally and univocally and and that i mean that's a very explicit way in which we could think about francis's movement away like literally to the edge of town to create monasteries like mono monism right or to the end of time and to the end of time right to to think distinctly from right to to be and think distinctly from the systems and structures to not touch money to not touch the timeline as it were and and exist in the void chaotically as as closer to god right and so that that fetish of differentiation as essentially the transcendent locus of monastic totality of God is precisely the relationship metaphysically that Deleuze has to, I mean, we could even say this to law, right? To this liberal understanding of law and language and money and counting as ordering. And instead we have this proximity to God in the chaotic flux of impoverished void, right? To, to use Loki's phrasing. So who is, who is Elias in this analogy? (laughs) Scott should take this. Who's Elioth in this analogy? Aside from the she-wolf and Dante. <laughs> uh, Elioth. Oh, Elioth is so many, many things. Elioth is, I think, first and foremost, Elioth is, well, not first and foremost, but but, but a, a place to start. Elioth is a Hobbesian Leviathan figure. He who remains... Um, essentially sees Elioth rearing up uh, out of the shards of chaotic time, and he shepherds and weaponizes this behemoth, this, this composite of temporal difference, in order to then order univocally through police and bureaucracy uh, 
the the the, the multiverse into a universe essentially, right? So it, it's like this temporal Hobbesian Leviathan figure. At the same time, it's very much a Deleuzian figure in the sense that it it all comes from temporal difference, right? It's also a kind of weird queer figure because because Eliath loves difference, right? Eliath loves to desires desires to gobble up everything that's pruned. Oh my everything god, Eliath out of whack. Eliath is capital. <laughs> capital is queer. What are we even talking what? about what? anymore? <laughs> Um, I want to talk about the the ways that the show um, keeps questions of money alive. Yeah. So the the you know we've talked about the kind of neoliberal story and this sort of implicit tax to spend logics where we have to trade or pay for um, you know pay for freedom with with our security with our with our uh, metaphysical tax money, but like. Right from the first episode, you get two diametrically opposed, but then end up being two sides of the same coin, figurations of money. You've got this guy who ends up in the TVA being processed at the same time as Loki. I don't remember the character's name, but he's coded as Jewish. He, his father he tells he tells the employees of the public employees of the tva his father works for goldman sachs he's on the board of goldman sachs and that he's gonna he's gonna tell his father if they don't release him he's gonna tell his father um to come after them and and he's gonna have their jobs privatized right so this is and and just in case we weren't getting like just like <laughs> the the look and the and the way of speaking of this guy as Jewish as like a Jewish young man brat um they have him say something waiting in the bureaucratic line in the basement of the TVA he he's told to take a ticket and he says what is this a deli right so it's all there right so Jewish univocal power hungry corporate neoliberal greedy money right and then in the very same episode, they have this kind of flashback where it's revealed that Loki was this actual guy, like not in the MCU, like th this guy actually existed in history. Um, what was his name? D.B. Cooper mm -hmm. or something, right? In this incident where he like, he, he had this money heist in like on this plane flight. And um, the way it unfolds, uh, Loki is db cooper doing this money heist and the way that sequence ends is loki jumping out of the plane float you know free you know falling and then the the case full of money explodes and then it's just equivocal chaos right so in the very first episode we have two figurations of money both private one univocal domination and, and anti-Semitic, <laughs> see our episode with Julie Mel, and then the other equivocal chaos. And then it kind of keeps going, but I don't know if we want to keep I, going down this I just path. like the idea of D.B. Cooper's, like Loki's D.B. Cooper money falling from the sky as what people mean when they think about helicopter money. 
Yeah, just yeah, ra- yeah. Right. It's the, it's the material <laughs> that's cash. That's literally down. what it is. That's what it is. Yeah, that's literally yeah, that's what it literally is. That's literally what it is. I'm pretty sure yeah. Randall Ray uh, wrote that <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> well, I mean. I mean, it's. It, it seems like there's this anxiety between, you know, going back and forth between univocity and equivocity and, and just an inability to do any, go outside of that binary. Um, and, and I think Marvel has had this problem for a while yeah. now. And, and this is kind of why we're always let down uh, or longing for something else and then not quite getting there. Um, time after time i think there's a few things i want to say because i do want to touch on a few of the details and the money stuff but this temporal structure is i i think to think about Thanos, it's actually a profoundly eco-fascist one right it's like we don't have enough resources temporally speaking to take care of everyone and so we it's and it's not even we just have to it's not kill half right it's more than that it's kill everyone except the elect Calvinist few. And so that that's a way in which this show keeps alive the Thanos Infinity War problematic, where, again, the problem of war is infinite. And, and so we have to either contract, 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 or let chaos, let the natural order of chaos reign. Um, but there, there are a few other things that I think are important monetarily speaking is the, the, the association with the Wizard of Oz and how historically that has uh, Wizard of Oz and the Yellow Brick Road uh, has been a figuration, a, a sort of populist allegory against the gold standard and, and the financial interests that are keeping that are running the world. Right. And, you know, the, the, the he who remains being a sort of Willy Wonka figure and the sort of private business kind of associations of that and the Citadel being a sort of castle on a hill, if you will. Um, there's there's a there's a sort of resonance or calling upon <laughs> the Fed. Yeah, it's the Fed. Right. <laughs> he who remains um, Jerome Powell. Um, <laughs> And and then the the there's the part that I think I actually did want to bring up, which because of the almost like Pandora's box atomic bomb physics physics related problematic that's that's here in, in the sense of temporal variances. Um, Scott was doing some research into the the actual artwork that defines the Citadel, and I, please talk about that because it's really interesting. So. Uh it um either was based on depending on what source you're following or is reminiscent of and it doesn't really matter which is the case of um this kind of very old and honored japanese art form uh called kintsugi and um essentially it's it's an art of of repairing broken things and then leaving the the fractures or the sutures leaving them um to uh to be you know appreciated right so instead of like painting the sutures over they're actually highlighted and i just want to say that's a beautiful art form i'm not an expert at it i'm sure it's fine i have no critique of that art form but it is conspicuous the way it's used to construct the citadel and other aesthetics especially at the end of loki um because 
Um, not only do we have all of these problematic assumptions and, and narrative ideas about trade-offs between you know, the fractured chaotic totality and the univocal suturing of, of this, um, but it also ends up aligning with money and gold because in this Japanese tradition, it's either gold or silver or some precious metal that is used in those seams themselves. And those seams in Loki very deliberately um, are kind of rhyme with or they look similar to the fractured timelines, the splitting timelines that we're seeing over and over again throughout the series where Univocity is spiraling out of control into queer equivocity. So insofar as gold is A, a highly legible figure for money, as problematic as that is, uh, and the show itself is digging into you know, the lore, both populist monetary uh, lore and queer lore of uh, Wizard of Oz, it just seems conspicuous and problematic that essentially we get, we get these fractured marbled surfaces sutured together with gold at the end, where it's like the, the univocity and equivocity of money are here kind of battling it out slash being crashed together because Tina, right? Because there's no and alternative. That's called uh, market equilibrium. That's called market equilibrium. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just, it, you know, it, it, it seems like we're, we're left with, with this, this dilemma that I'm trying to think through. And, and that's on the one hand, what is, the representation of going back to this idea that he who remains judge Renslayer and some of the other most important characters in the TVA uh, are, are represented by black actors and embody uh, this new deal, or it's not even just the new deal. It's almost like a new deal plus civil rights movement, like a green new deal, but as this fascist, uh, you know, controlling organizational impulse. And I, you know, in a, previous conversation scott i had mentioned on one hand it could be a projection right you have you know th these two as you mentioned pasty white people running around <laughs> trying <laughs> trying to fight trying to fight the the repression of the tva uh you know and quite possibly projecting like their own uh guilt onto what they're afraid of and yet it seems like, you know, it's important to theorize um, the kind of agency uh, that that these characters in charge of the TVA can represent. Yeah. And the important thing to say is that, that I mean, all texts, but mass cultural texts in particular, right, they're, they're, they are never univocal. They are plugging into the dilemmas of a day and they are re-articulating and restaging those dilemmas, which are ideological, historical, and political and economic as much as they are sensuous, aesthetic, formal, genre-based. You know, all these things are happening at the same time. And yeah, so it's not like we can just condemn the show for being flatly one way, but we can critique the way that it's indulging those impulses and indulging the justification for ethno-nationalist fascism, Trumpism, as opposed to the possibility, the reparative possibilities of a Green New Deal. Right. I mean, in one sense, it seems as though uh, 
the TVA is like critical race theory for Trump and you know Trump supporters yeah. and a bunch of uh, you know the white community in, in the United States right now that fear that <laughs> you know learning about racial justice and 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 uh, you know white supremacy will lead to this uh, oppressive fascist state against them or something like that. Yeah, taxing their whiteness away. And right. I think perhaps as we're sort of coming closer to the end of this conversation, one thing that was a interesting figure that I that I wanted to like latch onto and maybe hold open as a potential path forward, even though I don't think future uh, MCU shows, especially the ones that are gonna feature Kang the Conqueror or He Who Remains, in different variations. Um, and will similarly play out this univocity equivocity problem. But there is a sort of figure in Mobius, I think, that we can really like potentially hold on to as a way of thinking of remediating this problem, right? And the problem of governance and difference and and not and, and thinking of it differently, perhaps in a way that money on the left might be more uh, might be attuned more to our, our left intersectional MMT vision, which is Mobius as a as a figure, right? As a as a character, of course, recalls the Mobius strip, which, um, for those who don't know, is is a a strip with one surface that nevertheless is attached, sort of, at an inversion. I would Google it if if it's hard to explain. But so the the textbook definition is a one sided surface that can be constructed by affixing the ends of a rectangular stake strip after first having given one of the ends a one-half twist. But the Mobius strip is a way, literally, of taking one surface, like a flat plane, right, and, and creating a sort of a, pro- a properties of, of, of difference. It's a way of suturing a differentiation or, or a twist into a sort of imminence of of a one flat surface and and i don't want to affirm the metaphysics of attempting to suture a flat surface of to of difference in a way that creates a a sort of a variegation right that's not necessarily because i think that actually is wrong-headed and will leave us with a univocity equivocity problem still but in trying to even construct the image of taking the fat flat plane of imminence and twisting it into a sort of mediated spiral there is clearly to me a real desire for being able to think difference and governance at the same time right of being able to think essentially what we would call analogy here and and being able to think of mediation as a as a sort of guiding caretaking um problem that is one which being and time and, you know, is all bound up in. And so there is this yearning here, you know, and there's a reason why Mobius says maybe we can do this differently, right? As a, as a central fulcrum of a way of potentially trying to think the problem that, that Loki and the MCU has staged in a new way. Even if the, the strip, let's just say, can't outstrip its, its single-sidedness. Well, the character of Loki, in a lot of ways, is who he is, or they are, she is, uh, because they see this problem of univocal uh, and equivocity and kind of become 
a cynical trickster uh, to kind of troll it. But in this show, there is this redemptive quality to Loki who begins to understand themselves differently uh, through time because of the role of Mobius, I would argue, Mm -hmm. uh, who kind of uh, proposes that we see things differently, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, in in so many of our lives, right, this theme of like, well, what if we saw things differently uh, could play such a a role collectively and individually um, uh, to, to overcome some of these in inescapable binaries that we seem trapped in um but at the end of the show he's alone again right it, you know it's not enough it's a he's fracture he's right? alone yeah yeah it's, it's a, a fracture yeah, yeah. yeah but it's right before he says to his longtime friend and colleague and boss judgment slayer hey, we could you know we could do this differently i mean it really is it really is kind of a green new deal yeah. play it's it's like we could actually not do the new deal with all of its exclusions and its univocity we could do a green new deal and we could do it differently but yeah then he's she goes off by herself and and he's left and, alone and i think to to drive the point home on, on what andres is saying here right these variations of Loki are, they're not identical to one another, and yet they're all still Loki, right? And so that, that's not a contradiction, right? It's a, it's, and, and it's a way of insisting that the illumination paths of whether we could call it the Mobius therapeutic character or like the teacher character can, can allow us access to a way of thinking both Loki and variation at once. And we can scale that up to thinking difference and governance at once and thinking inclusion and difference at once. But the vision that Deleuze and that the structure of the predominant structure of the show provides is, is not one that allows for that possibility at all. And that's for frankly, the, that's frankly liberalism and, and modernity more broadly. Now our eyes hurt Eyes are sunk and limbs were shrunken down in the fall 
Yeah. 